0: If you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Uh, this morning we're going to be picking up in our series uh, in in First Peter. Uh, we uh, took a, a break for a time, of course, and went through uh, Advent season, and uh, now we're we're going to pick back up and and resume where we left off in uh, verse uh, twenty. Read from verse twenty-two to verse twenty-five. Our main focus this morning is is going to be on this. This phrase that Peter uses, that the Word of God is the living and abiding Word. And especially as we're entering now into this uh, season where everybody's getting ready for the new year to come and making resolutions, this will be a uh, fitting word for us uh, as we prepare for the next year uh, to come. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22... We read Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, in Your grace, You have given us Your Word. You have not remained silent. Even though we deserved to hear no words from You, even though fallen humanity deserves only a just condemnation, in Your grace, You have spoken the very Word that You have spoken has told the grand story of redemption that You are carrying out in the world even now. Through the work of Your Son and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit. And even now, as Your Word goes forth, it goes forth as a Word of power. A Word that accomplishes Your will. And as Peter says here, it is a living and abiding Word. And so, Father, I pray that this day in particular, as we think more about what Your Word teaches about Your Word, that we would see in it our life, our bread, our drink, that we would not neglect it, that we would consider it worthy of the entirety of our lives, Lord, that if we have not been doing so, if, if we have been walking in sin and neglecting to hear from You, I pray that this day You would grant to us repentance that leads to life and that we would turn to Your Word. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Next week for Sunday School, we're going to begin working through some new material on uh, the Puritans. You can thank Ms. Karen for that. She uh, drew my attention to it uh, several months ago. Uh, but the Puritans are, of course, uh, one of the, I would say, probably the most misunderstood uh, group of Christians that uh, there has been and probably is even now. A lot of people associate Puritanism with being puritanical, with being joyless, mean, obnoxious people, overly strict. But a lot of those ideas about the Puritans usually come from popular myths about the Puritans, about who they were and what they believed, or from people who have never actually read a a single book by a Puritan or a letter or a sermon, or if they have read some, it's only been selected works that don't represent the fullness of Puritan thought. I remember in in college uh, one year, I was taking a class, uh, it was a survey on American literature. Uh, One of the assigned readings that we we had to read was uh, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Puritan preacher called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, already if this particular work is in a survey of American literature, it's, it's an important work. It had an impact at some point, and this one uh, certainly did. But the sermon was presented in the class as a kind of example that Puritans just believed in this mean, angry, vengeful God that had no grace or love or mercy at all. It was used as an example that the Puritans themselves were, again, just this sort of obnoxious and mean spirited people. There was no context and no recognition that this was the same Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the primary preachers, along with George Whitefield, used of God in the first Great Awakening, the period in early American history in about the mid-1700s that saw a, a real revival of interest in the Gospel and love for Christ, a, a drive for holiness among the people of God that before had not really been there. One historian said of the Great Awakening that it was like a sudden bolt out of a clear blue sky. There was concern, spiritual concern among people, spiritual hunger. It was said in Boston that such was the consciousness of God and the fear of God that you could have left bars of gold on the pavement and no one would have moved them. It was the preaching and the teaching of men like this Jonathan Edwards that led to that revival break out in early America. This was the same Edwards also who once said that he who would set the hearts of other men on fire with the love of Christ must himself burn with love. And the same Edwards of whom once said after his death that he was always steady, always calm and serene, that as he lived cheerfully, resigned to the will of heaven, so he died. That doesn't sound like a description of a man that was just mean and and bitter. The point is that the Puritans are often greatly misunderstood. and, And that misunderstanding has often led Christians to neglect their works, many of which are readily available to us now. And and I would say a neglect that is to the detriment of our our own spiritual well-being. As the writings and the works of the Puritans are a, a treasure trove of godliness and holiness and devotional works. Now, if there's one thing that characterized the ministry and works of the Puritans... You could probably point to to many things, but one thing that you could point to is that they, perhaps more than any others, were saturated in Scripture and were constantly driving people back to Scripture and were orienting the, the whole of their own lives around Scripture. It was the rock upon which they built everything. There was one preacher in particular John Rogers, who was preaching a sermon one morning on the neglect of Scripture that he saw among so many people in his day. This was, of course, an observation that could even be made today. Right? This is an issue that doesn't just occur in one generation alone. But John Rogers, this Puritan preacher, was preaching on this very neglect that he saw. And one of the people in attendance that day was Thomas Goodwin, who himself would later become a very prolific Puritan preacher and theologian. And Goodwin recounted hearing Rogers preach. He said in that sermon, Rogers fell into an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. He was rebuking, correcting them about this woeful neglect. He said he personated God to the people, telling them, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses, all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it? Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. Then he took up his Bible as if he was about to carry it away forever so that no one would have access to it anymore. But then he turned back immediately and he personated at that point the people to God. He fell down on his knees and he cried and he pleaded most earnestly, Lord, whatever You do to us, take not Your Bible from us. Kill our children. Burn our houses. Destroy our goods. Only spare us your Bible. Only take not away your Bible from us. Then he personated God again. Say you so? Well, I will try you a little longer. And here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it. Whether you will love it more. Whether you will value it more whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live according to it. As he was preaching this sermon, Goodwin described the church, the place he was in, as a place of bokeh, is what he said, a Hebrew term describing a place of weeping. There were tears, streaming down from people's face, including Goodwin himself, because they all knew that they had been guilty of neglecting such a great treasure for so long. But Goodwin even said that he had a hard time riding his horse back home because every half hour he would have to stop weeping again because he had fallen under such conviction of sin for his neglect of the Word of God. And the thought of having it stripped away forever has moved him to repentance. As so I want to ask you a question this morning. What would your life be like if suddenly you were struck with blindness and you could not read the Bible anymore? Or what would happen if you were struck additionally with being deaf and you had no alternative to listen to the Bible being read? Would your regular intake of the Bible be changed at all? Or would there actually just be no difference? from before the blindness and deafness and after? Would you be starved of something that you had been eating on for so long? Would this create a significant change in your life? Would you have enough of the Bible stored away in your mind and in your heart to sustain you for the rest of your life, having no access to it anymore except for what you had internalized? Or would this be to you a judgment of God? That was as the days of Amos when he said that he was sending a famine upon the land. Not a famine of bread, not a famine of drink, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Would it be as to you a a judgment in that sense? We are, of course, in that season again when people are making resolutions for the new year. Things that you are going to resolve to change. Things that you are going to resolve to do better in in the coming year. Friends, this morning I want to exhort you place the Word of God at the top of that list. And to do so, not because this is going to be your righteousness before God. Not because this is going to be your means of boasting before Him or boasting before others. Not because this is just the good moral thing to do or the good Christian thing to do, but because you recognize that that this is a book to be savored and enjoyed. That this is a Word that God has given for your own good. And so for your own good, your own peace, your joy, your satisfaction, your walk in knowledge of Christ, you're going to take up the book and you're going to... want to make three observations about the Word of God from our text this morning that I hope will encourage you to do this very thing over the next year, to, to take up the Word and to eat it. And the first observation about the Word of God that I want you to see here is that the Word of God is living. The Word of God is living. It works. Moves. It acts. It has power. It's not just words on a page that lie dormant. It's not just like picking up any fiction or nonfiction book from the bookstore. And whether or not you read it is a matter of indifference and there's no consequence to it. It is the word of the living God. And his word works to accomplish his will. Notice what he says. Notice what Peter says in verse 23 of chapter 1. We'll look at the the logic and the connection between verses 22 and 23 in a moment. But for now, notice again that Peter says of Christians, You have been born again. You've been born again. This is the same thing that he said in verse 3 of chapter 1 when he said of God that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There in that verse, Peter identified God Himself as the primary cause of the new birth. Christ. We, we remember when, when we looked at that text, we saw there that your salvation, your conversion is not ultimately something that is dependent on your own willing or acting. If you know Christ, if you've been born again, it is the work of the divine sovereign God. It is He who is the agent in your salvation. It is He who created new life in you. It is God who takes a dead sinner who is dead in His rebellion and makes Him alive. But here in verse 23, Peter is not identifying the subject, the, the one who is doing the work of the new birth. He identifies the means that God uses to bring about this new birth. He does not part the heavens. Reveal Himself to each person by a thunderous voice and flashes of light. There's a lot of people who say, I would believe in God if He would show me some incredible miracle like that. If He would reveal Himself in the heavens. If He would part the clouds and make Himself known in such a powerful way. Of course, we know from the Bible that even if they were to see something like that, they would not believe. But that's not how He brings people to Himself. That's not how He creates the new birth. He doesn't part the heavens and show us Himself by some act of divine revelation in the sky. He doesn't appear to us in dreams and visions and lead us to Himself through these means. The work of the new birth, the work that the Spirit of God carries out in the lives of sinners is a work that comes through the Word of God. His Word. This is the means that He has ordained to carry out His will, bringing the nations to Himself. Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God is here is especially how the word is understood as living it has power to bring about the effect that God intends for it it comes with the the very same power that the word of God had in the very beginning of creation when there was nothing there was no world. There was no earth. There were no heavens. And He spoke. And he created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. The Word comes with that very same creative power. Salvation, spiritual renewal, genuine revival of the soul is a work that comes exclusively through the Word of God. If you have come to know the Lord, if if you can say of yourself that you you know Him and you love Him, you came to know the Lord because of the Word. You either heard it preached, you read it, you had someone else speak it to you, Whatever the particular circumstance was, it is the Word and the Word alone that God says brings about conversion. All other supposed access points are false. Some people tell stories, no doubt, of spiritual experiences that they've had. The sun shined on them in a particular way at a difficult moment in life and they interpreted this as a sign from God. They asked God for a sign and they looked up and lo and behold, what do they see before them? They see a church, a sign from God. They had a dream of a white dove flying towards them and they interpreted it as a sign from the Holy Spirit. True story. People often tell these stories and they claim based upon these stories that this is how they've come to know God. Friends, the Bible is very clear. Conversion is not the result of dreams and visions. Conversion is not the result of the interpretation of signs of providence. It is always the result of the Word of God. Because God has ordained that His Word be the means by which He speaks to His people and the means by which He saves them and renews them. If there were additional means to bring people to Himself, there would be no need for the work of missions to go into the nations and to proclaim the Word. We could simply expect that the Lord will appear in dreams and visions and bring the nations to Himself. No, He has given us a task. He has given us a task because He has ordained the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, to be the means by which He draws people So in that sense, the Word is living. It is alive, it works, it acts, it has power. Secondly, the Word of God is also an abiding Word. It's not a Word that will ever fail. It's not a Word that changes with the times. Many people, of course, want to make it so. They say, well, this, this book here, this this book is an ancient book. It's written by an ancient people. They didn't know the kinds of things that we know today. They didn't have the kind of technology, and the discoveries that we have today. They haven't advanced and progressed as far as we have in our own day. The times we live in have changed. We've progressed far beyond the thinking of ancients and. And therefore, we must read the Bible through a, a new, modern lens. We must update it. We must try to discern what were, the, what were the original good intentions of the people when they wrote the Bible and bring those good intentions in line with, with our modern values. A lot of people want to update the Bible in that sense. Friends, this is always going to be a fool's errand. Our technologies may have changed. Our scientific discoveries may be newer. But man has not changed. Sin has not disappeared. The man who thousands of years ago would go into the street to find prostitutes and lust after them is the same man who lusts in his own home today. The woman who gossiped in the streets about her Neighbors is the same woman who still gossips today. The nature of man has not changed. The fallenness of man has not changed. But neither, neither is it the case that God has changed. He is the same God who upholds the world now. And he is the same God who upheld it then. And he is the same God who made promises then and fulfilled them then, and the same God who continues to fulfill them even now. This is what Peter means when he says that the word of God is abiding. It is, it's faithful. It's true. You can, you can trust in it. It will not be thwarted by the plans of man. It will not be thwarted by the changing times. The text that he quotes to explain this particular statement comes from Isaiah chapter forty, verses six to eight. This is a chapter in Isaiah that comes on the heels of. God having issued warnings of judgment to His people throughout chapters 1 to 39. Of course, there were, there were many promises made in those early chapters as well, but by and large, it's, it's a lot of chapters dealing with woes against the nations and judgments to come. He warned them of Judah's eventual destruction and exile by the Babylonian empire. He warned them of the present empire of Assyria, nearly decimating them in their own times. And, and the only reason that the massive Assyrian Empire wasn't able to destroy the nation of Judah was because of the sovereign intervention of God when in a single night, He struck down 185,000 Assyrian troops. Then when we come to chapter 40, God announces a promise of good things He says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended. He tells them that that their iniquities will be pardoned. He tells them of of one who will come and who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. A text, of course, that is fulfilled. John the Baptist preparing the way for... Christ to come. He tells them that the glory of the Lord will be revealed to His people, that good news will be preached to them, and that they will be delivered from all of their enemies. These are all promises made to a people who at the time were were presently being afflicted by much stronger empires, and, and who in the coming years would even be exiled from their land, would would look outside and see what appeared to be the failure of God's promises. the Conquest of the plans of men thwarting those promises. In the midst of that, God assures His people that what He says will surely come to pass. Even if it appears that all the pagan nations are, are succeeding and are overthrowing His plans no flesh will be able to stop it. For He says, all flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord will stand forever. The abiding nature of the Word of God means that it is a Word that you can trust, you can hold on to, you can live your life by it, It is a word that will provide you with more certainty and more confidence and more assurance than than any of your own masterful and grandest plans. Think for a moment. Do you believe that you know how to live a good life? Do you believe that You know yourself inside and out, but you know your weaknesses. You know your strengths. You believe that you know how to be a good parent, a good father, a good mother, a good husband, or a good wife. You believe that you know how to run a a good business. You believe that you know how to live in peace and joy and true happiness. If you are living your life apart from the word of God, you are deceived and you know nothing. No matter how much you believe you do. You're like a blind man who's walking blissfully unaware towards a cliff because it is the word of God that you need. It is the word of God that all men need. And it is the word of God that you shall have if all you do is but take. savior. Now, last of all, I also want you to see that the word of God is not only the living word, it's not only the abiding word, a word that you can trust in and hope in and place your confidence in. I want you to see that the word of God is the very thing that moves us to love properly. To love as we've been called to love. This is where I want you to see the logic, the connection between verses 22 and 23 and following in the text. Peter says, beginning in verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And here I just want you to note briefly that the truth is the truth of the gospel. Here, The gospel is something to be obeyed and to be submitted to furthermore, this truth, Peter says, is for a sincere, brotherly love. Which is to say that a proper obedience to the truth of the gospel results in a loving disposition towards brothers, especially. Fellow believers. So again, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. The logic here is simple. The new birth comes with ethical demands. Or rather, it comes with ethical implications. Obligations. Since you have been born again, he says. Since this is true of you. Since you have this new nature. By the grace of God. Since you are no longer bound by sin since you have been set free from unrighteousness and have become slaves to God. Since, according to your own profession, you have a new heart that loves God and loves His will. And just as Jesus loves His bride, you also love His bride. Again, since the reality of the new birth is true in you, love one another with a pure heart. Now, notice here that he does not say, love all people. Though that is certainly implied. We are not to be a people who who demonstrate hatred towards others. But I want you just to notice here, he doesn't say here, this is not his focus, to say love all people in reference to this sort of general, universal love for all that we would have. He is saying here specifically to love one another. This is a defined group of people. This one another here refers to the recipients of Peter's letter. Christians, Believers united to churches all over Asia. We could say virtually the same thing by saying, love the church from a pure heart. Love the brothers. Love the Christians. Love those who are sealed by the same Holy Spirit as you are. Love those who you will spend all eternity with. You are in the Lord. Love those who are fellow heirs in the kingdom of God. Love one another from a pure heart. And do this since you have been born again from the living and abiding Word of God. Again, the logic is simple. The Word of God is power. The Word of God is living. It creates new life it brings about a new birth and when a new birth is created through the word that new life ought also to love others who partake in this new life because again we share the same spirit we've been sealed by the same spirit of God the implication of course is that just as it is the word of god and the word of god alone that saves you it is the word of god alone that will give you a heart for the church and that will move you to love the bride as jesus loves the bride Friends, let me tell you i when i talk to people who are who are really entangled in sin. 99.9% of the time, when we get to the issue of what their Bible intake is, how often are you in the Word of God? How often are you communing with the Lord through His Word? 99% of the time, it's almost completely absent. It's, it's the root of a lot of these sin issues. And in the same way, most of the time when someone is either disconnected from the church or, or even worse, they find themselves having a disdain for God's people or an indifference towards God's people. You know what is absent in their life? A lot of the times, it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. So, if you want to be obedient to the Word of God and obedient to His command to love one another earnestly, you want to be obedient to Jesus' great command that He gives to the disciples to love one another just as I have loved you, you have to do what Jesus did. And you have to consume the Word. It is the very Word which will work within you. It is that very word that gave you new life in your conversion. It is that very word that continues to this day to shape you and to conform your own life and your affections. To be the affections of Christ resulting ultimately in a love for the body as Christ has for His There is no aspect, no aspect of the Christian life that can genuinely, faithfully be lived apart from the Word of God. So, in this coming year that, that we're approaching, you want to follow Jesus more, you want to know Him and love Him more, and you want to have a vital, vibrant, loving from a pure heart relationship with the body of Christ the first thing you do is you commit yourself you resolve in repentance commit yourself to the word of God and you take it up and you eat it as it is true bread and you drink it as it is true drink and the Lord will shape your heart Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we've just read, it is the Word of God that is living, abiding, active. It's your Word that is powerful, that it transforms and takes once rebellious sinners, haters of God, and changes them into a people who from the heart love God. And It is the same word that is commended to us throughout the Bible to continue to take and to eat and to savor as it shapes us and sanctifies us and conforms us more into the image of Christ and gives us the very heart that He has. So Lord, as as a people who are called by Your name, who desire to know You more fully, to love the body of Christ as we ought, to love one another as Your Word commands, I, I pray, Lord, that You would stir us up not only in the first few days of the new year or the first month or two or three, Lord, that you would do a work within us by your Spirit and through the Word that would sustain us from this day forward. We would be a people of the book and that the book would make us a people of Christ and a people who love one another. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.